Well, good morning. Hey, thanks for being here today. I want to welcome all those who are joining us online. Uh, one more announcement in addition to Bob, and this is really a reminder. We mentioned this the last few weeks that we are putting a more focused attention on parenting heading into the fall, specifically rolling out of our summer relevant faith uh, apologetic series. We want to do a better job at equipping parents in this Gen Z time, what many say is the first post-Christian generation to equip parents for the questions that you are getting from your children, from your teenagers. And in order to do that, we need to hear from you on what those questions are. So on both uh, ways out of the worship center here in the South Hills, if you would grab one of these uh, and fill that out, we need those back within the next two weeks as we prep for the fall. You can also do that online, uh, biblechapel.org parents, and that will greatly help us as we get ready for that offering in the fall. Okay. Let's pray and ask God to lead us uh, in his word this morning. Father, we thank you for today and uh, we praise you uh, every time that we can come together uh, across our campuses and as one church, focus on the word of God. We have already worshipped through song, we have worshipped through giving, and now we want to worship through the hearing of your word. God, as we have already recognized this weekend, Memorial Day weekend, first and foremost, we praise you, who is sovereign over all. And God, every person in our worship center is truly blessed that we live in a country where we are free to worship the name of Jesus. We think of many of our mission partners uh, who are in countries now where they need to worship in hiding for fear of their safety. And God, what a, what a blessing to know that we can freely worship you this morning. And we God, we know that that freedom comes with a price of those in our armed forces, specifically Memorial Day weekend, we remember those who have fallen in order to protect our freedom. God, this weekend for many probably will be uh, being with family and spending the extra day off to, to celebrate with a cookout and fellowship, but this is a tough weekend for many. Those who mourn the loss of a loved one who gave their life so we could have freedom in this country. So, Father, we pray that you would be with those families this weekend. Cover them in your love as only you can. And, Father, now as we direct our attention to your word, we always ask that you would speak to us. So let the words that come out of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be honoring and pleasing to you, O God. In Christ's name, amen. So uh, over the past decade, for the run of probably the last 10 years, there have been some prominent church leaders all the way from California to Florida who have been fired from their positions of authority because of leadership and ethical failures. Some are very prominent figures with big churches and, and media ministries, and through their firings, they have left behind some broken churches, some closing their doors, and many hurt and disillusioned people about the church. Most recently in February, a, a well-known pastor in Chicago was fired for what the church says, quote, was conduct contrary and harmful to the best interests of the church. In that specific situation, many are asking, what took so long to make this move? 
Five years ago, one article says that former elders wrote to the sitting elder board that that pastor had come to the point that he was disqualified to lead the church, but no action was taken. Although the pastor is the main focus of this story, there are many leaders of that church and people in that church who are facing the consequences as well because they never took action on sinful and harmful behavior in leadership. Even the Chicago Tribune has done a, uh, multiple stories on this and they said, quote, several other elders and church leaders have now left the church. And a respected elder quit after publishing a letter criticizing the board for carrying on business as usual. This newest headline is a reminder that no leader is spiritually invincible. And if left unchecked, simple and corrupt behavior can have devastating effects to a local church and to the broader church name and image as a whole to our nation. Every person that walks through the doors of a local church is an eternal soul. That means the work of the church is serious business. Therefore, the attitude of business as usual cannot be the church's attitude when it comes to sinful and corrupt conduct and leadership within its walls. Whether it's the, the top leader or the newest member, it needs addressed immediately. The Apostle John knew this full well. And that's why the church is under his care in leadership. When he heard of sinful or corrupt behavior happening in leadership, he took action. He addressed it head on. And we see that specifically in the letter of 3 John. If you have your Bibles, turn to 3 John. Just go to Revelation and turn two books back and you are there. If you've been with us since May, we've been traveling through the two shortest books in all of the Bible. Second and third John. Uh, next week, Ron will be back and we'll be diving back into the rest of first John. But today, we're going to finish third John. If you were with us last week, we saw that this letter was written to an individual, a man by the name of Gaius. We don't know much about Gaius except from the content of the letter. We can infer that he was a close, probably former disciple of John. John calls him four times beloved, which means worthy of my love. And John speaks of Gaius, who most likely now was part of a house church around Ephesus where John resided at the time. And John prays is Gaius for what we said is his spiritual health. John had sent some teachers to Gaius's church, and when they reported back, they gave Gaius the compliment that every believer should desire to be spoken of then. If you remember this last week, 3 John verse 3, we read, John says, I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed, Gaius, you are walking in the truth. John says, Gaius, those who observed your behavior said this guy, Gaius, is a spiritually healthy man. What's true of his life actually matches up to the truth of Scripture. Last week we saw three things about the spiritual health of Gaius. God's word regulated his life. 
Gaius was a model of good stewardship. His time, talents, and treasures used for the Lord. We saw that with how he treated and, and showed hospitality to those traveling teachers. And also, Gaius was just a man who desired not for his uh, notability, but really to exalt the name of Jesus. Two other individuals are mentioned in this letter, Diotrephes and Demetrius. Demetrius mentioned once, verse 12, and he is another traveling teacher whom John has sent to this church, and John praises him for his testimony and that he is a man of truth, and he's asking Gaius to receive Demetrius well. Most likely, it is believed Demetrius would have been the one who gave this letter to Gaius. But the main purpose of John's letter is this man, Diotrephes. We don't know Diotrephes' exact role in the church, but based off what we can infer, he, he could have been an elder who at this point had, had rose to authority through self-will and dominance, and maybe he started calling the shots for the church instead of the elders as a whole. We, we don't know his exact role of leadership, but what we know from John is this. The character and conduct of Diotrephes was absolutely toxic to this church community. It was detrimental to the work of this local church. Therefore, John had to address it. So with urgency, he pens third John. And, and as a last living apostle, John passionately talks about the need to address the conduct of Diotrephes. Last week we said John gets very personal in this letter, so we're going to get personal with ourselves. Give a self-assessment of your spiritual health. Would those who observe your conduct and behavior in the church say you're more like Gaius? Or do you show symptoms of diatrophies? Today we're going to look at just three verses in this letter. And we're going to look and see what is diatrophies syndrome. What are some symptoms in your life that you could start showing signs of diatrophies syndrome in your life? Things you want to avoid. And we're going to end, fittingly, with communion. What are the three remedies to diatrophies syndrome that we can avoid, that will help us avoid that in our lives. So here we go. Look at verse 9, 3 John verse 9, where we pick up from last week. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. When John says, I have written, we can infer that he has already sent a letter in the past to this church, and Diotrephes either tore up and discarded the letter, or at least he definitely disregarded the instructions of John. And in this verse, John gives us the reason, the first reason of why he disregarded John's instructions. Diotrephes is this type of person. He says he is a guy who likes to put himself first. This likes to put some, himself first is actually one word in the Greek, a complicated, long word. It's only used here in the New Testament. A literal meaning, loves to be first. In the Greek, it describes the person who to the full extent is selfish self-centered, and self-seeking. 
Diotrephes was one who failed to understand or accept that only Jesus Christ is first of his church. Scripture says that he is preeminent, meaning he's distinguished as first above all. Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The danger is when a single person starts to act in that manner, which probably happens a lot with these who fall, instead of putting Jesus back in his rightful place as the head of every church, a local church. By rejecting John's letter and then rejecting the teachers whom John had sent, and John said in verse 7, they were sent for the sake of the name, the name of Jesus. Diotrephes, in effect, was rejecting Jesus' authority. The message of Christ... And it seems like Diotrephes even was trying to seize control as the head of this church. So here's the first sign of Diotrephes' syndrome. The prideful exaltation of oneself above others. Diotrephes loved to be the leader. He loved to have authority. And he loved to have full control. The root issue of Diotrephes is still among us today, spiritual pride. When I say pride or being proud today, I'm not talking about being proud of the work you do unto the Lord, the the pride uh, parents have for their children as they got through the school year and did a job well done. I'm not talking about being proud of someone. I'm talking about the selfish, prideful exaltation of one person putting themselves above others. And pride is always ready, if you allow it, to seize your heart, your mind, and your actions. And pride is one thing in Scripture we see that God has zero tolerance for. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. We see throughout Scripture starting in the Old Testament from kings and prophets and priests, those with pride would end up falling. We think about the Pharisees and Sadducees, the experts in the law. And because of their spiritual pride, they miss that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, their long-awaited Savior, was standing right in front of them. Pride causes us want to exalt ourselves, but all it does, Scripture says, is lead to our fall. Pride goes before destruction, Proverbs 16, 18, and a haughty spirit before a fall. If left unchecked, pride will follow you everywhere, into your marriages, into your friendships, into your workplaces, into your neighborhoods, and into the church. And it can be so subtle, causing us to be blinded to it. Proud is the one who often magnifies the flaws of others, magnifies the sins of others, always the first to point something out, but they refuse to see the sin in their life. They, they refuse to ever recognize that they have flaws themselves. Proud is the one who rejects correction, 
When a brother or sister brings something up that needs addressed in their life, walls always go up. Someone else is always to blame. And it gets to the dangerous point where people now are afraid to even bring it up to them as they're left in their self-pride. Proud are the ministry controllers. They always have to dominate the room. Core group, ministry planning meeting, because their ideas are always the best. Uh, as a staff, we uh, did five years ago, it was something called like the Ministry Control Freak Assessment. It was, uh, it was like a bunch of questions, and you scored from 1 to 50. And I was like, this is going to be fun. This is going to be a lot of fun. See where everyone is. So we all took the assessment. And uh, can you guess who won that competition? It's probably the one trophy I wish I never got. And I was like, wait a second, this thing's off. And uh, I was leading Wilkinsburg at the time, and then God caused me to reflect. Oh, yeah, I kind of did end up dominating that meeting. Yep. Yeah, I kind of squashed an opportunity to empower someone there. Yep. Yeah, I see that there. Humbling, thankful to be aware of it. Proud is the nitpicking believer. Always something wrong with the church. I can't believe at the coffee station they go with French vanilla and hazelnut creamer when pumpkin spice is still on the market. What is wrong with them? Or even worse, even more dangerous, every time they walk through those doors into the worship center, they come in with the agenda to find something wrong with the service instead of focusing fully on worshiping the Lord. Proud is the unforgiving one. Even though we're told to forgive as Christ forgave us, I'm going to hold on to this one a little bit longer. Oh, if you only knew what he or she did. I'm going to hold on to this. Beware of the pride of Diotrephes. That's the first thing with Diotrephes syndrome. Second is in that exact same verse. Verse uh, 9 and Third uh, John. He says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. By our, John's talking obviously about himself and most likely here, about those traveling teachers whom he had sent for the sake of the name. Diotrephes has rejected the leadership of John. In the church today, that might be like some who could care less about how they talk to or about their church leaders. But in John's day, this was serious business. To reject the leadership of John is to reject apostolic leadership, the leadership that Jesus gave his apostles to begin his church. A leadership that Diotrephes has zero respect for. And then because of that, we see the third symptom of Diotrephes syndrome. In the, in the back end, uh, first end of uh, verse 10, John says, So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing. Because he is talking wicked nonsense against us. Another sign of Diotrephes syndrome is those with an untamed tongue that tears down others. 
The Greek here literally reads, bringing false charges against us with evil words. Diotrephes was bad-mouthing John and the other uh, leaders of the church with absolute unjust charges. You ever notice that? Someone who wants to exalt themselves has to character assassinate others in front of them. They've got to bring down others in order to exalt themselves in the process. And I love that John does not mince words here. He says, if I come, I'm going to bring up what he's doing in front of the entire church. The old son of thunder, right? He's still got that zeal and that passion. By that phrase, I will bring up what he is doing, some believe that John is simply following the church discipline process of Matthew 18. He has tried to address it once. He sent a previous letter with someone to give that. That was rejected. He had sent multiple teachers. They were rejected. And John says, well, now if I come, I'm going to bring diatrophies before the church and use my authority to address it once and for all. The, the deal with church discipline is that it's always first and foremost for restoration. You want to restore a brother or sister in Christ. But because division is serious business, if someone seems to be like Diotrephes, unwilling to humble themselves, unwilling to repent, it might come to the point, like John, where they need to be removed from the local body. No one individual is that important to cause complete division and to take Jesus off his throne as the head of the church. John says, I cannot let the untamed tongue of Diotrephes keep going. If I come, I'm going to address it. And that's because the fourth symptom of Diotrephes syndrome is they are a divider in the church. The end of verse 10. And not content with that, Diotrephes refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. This is crazy. It's like someone here today saying, here's what we're going to do. Close down the children's entrance. Lower parking lot, close that as well. You only get here through the main lobby doors. And when they come, I will say if they can stay or not. Sandy, come on in. Bob, uh-uh, you were nice to those missionaries last week. Get out of here, Bob. Literally what he was doing. That's how crazy this is. Some wonder, again, was he an elder, abusive elder? Was he a lay person? It's a house church, most likely. Was he a rich man? And they were meeting at his house. But what's interesting is, is John never brings up doctrine here. Second John was all about false teachers. He's, he not once brings up doctrine. The issue with Diotrephes, pride untamed tongue. He was a divider. It was about his conduct and character in this church. Literally so much so, he was excommunicating anyone who was a threat to his reign. Some wonder if that's what happened to Gaius. John seems to be writing to Gaius about his own church and informing him of what's going on. Some wonder, well, maybe that's what happened to Gaius. Or John is warning Gaius about the hostility and to not give in to diatrophies. And that's why he says in verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever good is good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. John is saying, don't let diatrophies rub off on you, Gaius. 
Stay true to what was said of you. Keep being a man of God who walks in the truth. Keep imitating the good of God's word. When we think of God's word, we think of his truth, and we think of that word imitate. The one whom we should always first and foremost imitate is Jesus Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Therefore, the remedy to didotrophy's syndrome is to follow the example of Jesus Christ. So as we prepare for communion today, we're going to end this section of Scripture by looking at three areas of Jesus' life that we should imitate, and by doing so, we will avoid those symptoms of diotrophies syndrome. Here's the first one. We need to imitate the humility of Jesus Christ. Humility does not come natural to us, even as sinners saved by grace. Pride, easy as can be. Natural as can be. Humility, we often have to work for. We need to follow the example of Jesus Christ, who being fully God, humbled himself, took on flesh, as Paul says, became a servant to all that we might experience freedom from our sin. Paul says in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, speaking to believers, have this mind among yourselves. Be committed to this mindset, church, who, speaking of Jesus, was in the form of God, fully God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, taking the form of a human being, born in the likeness of man. And he did this by humbling himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on across. It, it, I want to start here. If you're here today and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you may be unaware of this, but you are spiritually proud in some form or fashion because you have yet to recognize the only way to a relationship with the living God is not through anything that you can do but only through what Christ has done on your behalf on the cross. Today, maybe the start of imitating the humility of Christ is for you to humble yourself at the foot of the cross and say, God, I know that I'm a sinner. Nothing I can do can earn your favor. Nothing I can do can put me in a right relationship with you. But I know your son, fully God, took on flesh. He became a servant for me. And he died in my place on the cross. Today I profess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead and in him alone can I be saved. Today you can go from dead in your trespasses and sins to alive in Christ. That's the first step of humility. Second, believers, man, we need to wake up every day keeping our pride in check. That means when our feet hit the floor, we say, Father, today, keep me humble in your ways. Let me not exalt myself, 
But as I humble myself to you, you exalt me in whatever manner you desire. Luke 14, 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. James 4, 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So uh, Catherine Graham was the publisher of the Washington Post from 1969 to 1979. She was actually the second person in American history to become, uh, the uh, second female in American history to become the publisher of a major American newspaper. And she was the first one in 1972, uh, the first female CEO to reach the Fortune 500 list. She, during her tenure at the Post, interviewed countless world leaders. So when she retired, she was asked this question. Is there a common trait you've noticed in the great leaders you've met, in all the interviews you've done, in all the leaders you've met, what's the one thing that sets apart the great ones? I love her response. Quote, absence of arrogance. All the truly great leaders possessed a humble spirit. The great ones are absence of arrogance. You want to be a great Christian leader, man, it starts by first following the great humility of Christ. Second, unlike Diotrephes, who had loose lips, he talked wicked nonsense against church leadership. The second remedy to make sure that doesn't happen to us is may we use our tongue instead to pray for the church. We need to imitate the prayer life of Jesus Christ. What's interesting, I think most when I meet with who are struggling in their prayer life, devotional life, man, their schedule gets the best of them, right? The busy seasons of life, you get out of sorts in your devotional schedule and then you're, then you're off pace. Jesus had a crazy schedule. I think he had the busiest ministry schedule you could ever imagine. Many times, all day doing ministry into the early morning. But we would see this uh, as a description of our Savior. Probably when he wanted to hit the snooze button once or twice, he would do this, Mark 1:35, Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed, went out to a desolate place, and he prayed. Often when Jesus would go pray, it would not be for himself. It would be for others. One of the best prayers that you can model and read and know is the high priestly prayer is what it's called in John 17. John, the, the same John who wrote Third John, the apostle John wrote the gospel of John, and he records in John 17 this prayer of Jesus. And according to John, this is a prayer that Jesus did right before he was arrested and went to the cross. And Jesus spent time in prayer. He first prays and offers himself up to the Father that he would be glorified through his obedience. And secondly, he prays for his disciples. He prays for his church leaders who would lead his church. He does that through verses 6 through 19, but I want to read just three verses. I am praying for them, verse 9. I'm praying for my disciples. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, 
but they are in the world. I am coming to you. Jesus says, I'm about to leave. I'm about to do the mission of the cross, rise again. I'm going to go sit at the right hand of the throne of God. I'm coming to you, Father. So I ask that you do this. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. The Son of God, about to go through the cross for our redemption, prays for his future church leaders, saying, Father, keep them in your name. Keep them united as one. If Jesus Christ prayed for his leaders, how much more so should we pray for the leaders of our church? Paul, in seven of his letters, requests prayer from the very churches that he was called to shepherd and lead. He says, I need your prayers. He would often say, pray for me. He was not ashamed or bashful to say, I need your prayers. Diotrephes disrespected church leadership with his tongue. The first remedy to avoid that is to always be in prayer for church leadership. I say this with all sincerity. If you find it hard to pray for the leaders of your church, you either need to find a new church or a renewed heart. I'm not ashamed to say I need prayer. I ask you to pray for our elders. I ask you to pray for Ron. Pray for our campus pastors. Pray for our entire staff. Pray for every member who teaches our children, our students, our adults. Pray for every person of the Bible chapel. As Paul simply puts in 1 Thessalonians 5.25, brothers and sisters, I ask you, pray for us. Final remedy of Diotrephes syndrome is how Jesus was a unifier. Imitate the unity of Christ. Diotrephes, with his aim to exalt himself, caused complete division. He was a complete divider. Jesus is the complete unifier of his church. In that same prayer, John 17, as Jesus wraps up this prayer, he has already offered himself up to the Lord, and then he prays for his immediate disciples, the leaders of his first century church, and then he prays for all those who will believe in their message. He prayed for us. He prayed for every person who will profess faith in him. And there's this theme that rings out in the final part of this prayer. Just listen to these four verses, starting in verse 20. I do not ask for these only. I don't ask for just my disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be even one as you and I are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love me even as you loved me. Jesus says, my prayer is for a unified church because when my church is one, then the world will know why you sent me. As we get ready for communion today, 
I want to remind us uh, communion is a believer's meal, meaning if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we are thankful that you are here. But we ask that you do not partake of communion. It is for believers only. You do not have to be a member of the Bible Chapel. You are welcome to partake if you have trusted in Jesus Christ. In church, as we partake of communion in obedience to that command of Christ and remembrance of him, I want you to think about those, those three remedies to diatrophy syndrome. Spend some time in prayer. Maybe if it's been a while since you, you prayed for the leadership of our church, use a little bit of this time of reflection to pray for our leaders. I ask you that you would humble yourself. Paul says whenever we, we come to the table, we need to examine our hearts. If there's something today as a follower of Christ that you need to address with the Lord, I ask that you humble yourself. Off, give that to God, whatever it is in your life. And the beauty of communion is that this is a unifying thing we do as a church. We do this together. Together we remember the broken body of Christ, the shed blood of Christ on our behalf. And because of his ultimate act of humility and service, we can be one. I'm going to pray for us as we open up the table and then the ushers will come and, and bring the elements to you and, and then one of our elders will lead us through communion. Again, I ask you to spend time right now. Humble yourself before the Lord and let's get our hearts centered on Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the truth of your word. God, third, John is a challenging little letter rich with theological truth, rich with convicting statements. And God, we think about uh, Jesus in that prayer in John 17. When his work was done here on earth, finished the job for the redemption of our sins, his prayer was that we would not be isolated believers who are divided, but Father, unify them. Just as we are one, Unify my church. And God, in many churches over the past decade have been divided over issues. Man, may we be a church here at the Bible Chapel, unified with humility, with prayer, because we're all here, not for the sake of our name, but for the sake of the name of Jesus. And right now we get our focus on him as we partake of communion. So we commit this time of obedience to you now in Christ's name. Amen.